0: Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode will be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode you will meet Dr Kate Bowles in this episode. Kate is an Associate Dean at the University of Wollongong, Australia, with a long history in online education that began with internet relay chat. Kate would like to take the management out of the LMS and instead rewild online education. So stand by for some inspiration. I'm talking with Dr Kate Bowles, Associate Dean International in the Faculty of the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Wollongong in Australia. Kate has been involved in the e-learning and teaching initiatives at the university alongside her disciplinary expertise in film, television and digital media and cultural studies. And she brings a great deal of experience of internationalisation to her work. Kate, it's great to be talking with you.
1: Oh, you too, Mark.
0: Well, can you start by telling us a bit about your career and publications?
1: It's not really a publication career, I think. Um, I became known for having some thoughts about e-learning, particularly, when I started to blog. And I wanted to put my thoughts out in public in that slightly shorter form because I could see that things were changing very quickly. And I wanted to be thinking out loud about Mm. that. I wanted to understand my own practice and the institution's practice and particularly some of the procurement and governance thinking that I was watching happen all around me. So I took to blogging. And I think that's where people have tended to know me.
0: Mm, Great. So of course some of your early work in online education was to do with the University of Wollongong's strategy, uh, the e-learning teaching and learning strategy. Uh, Was that among your earliest publications in the online space?
1: I think it probably was. I'm interested in how universities behave themselves strategically, uh, what the goals of strategy are and what strategy is as a cultural object. So when a university develops a strategy for something, instead of what I think is quite a useful function for strategy, which is to deal with a problem. Universities tend to use strategies to try to cover up their problems and talk about something else. And i found that really interesting. Um, So I was very happy to be involved in thinking about what strategy for e-learning was doing at a time when there were so many different stakeholders who were jostling for attention. Universities were trying to decide whether this meant long-term change or short-term change. And I think at that time, we were just getting used to the idea that we had another whole sector growing beside us, that we didn't control, that didn't have the same ambitions as us, that had ambitions of its own, mm. and that we were part of its ambitions. So it was a classic case of a, of a predator fish that turns around and finds itself facing a much bigger predator.
0: Mm, mm. Can you tell us a bit about your experiences then working with vendors and, and the um, almost the tension you would have felt during that time?
1: I found vendors very interesting when I first started to engage with them. So I'd had a background in teaching online since the mid-90s. And so I had quite a lot of experience one way and another. I was using free public online tools before LMSs really were a thing. Yeah. And so I had found myself in committee roles where what was becoming online learning was being managed. Yeah. And then As a university, we had had one LMS after another, and we'd already began to observe that sometimes you bought one LMS and another company bought that company, and you ended up with the one you hadn't chosen. So we'd been through that. (laughs) And when we went out to tender for a replacement for the LMS that we had, I was brought into that process, along with other people with similar sorts of experience. Mm. And so we started to meet vendors. Live as it were, and I was very interested in vendors. They were such interesting people, they had interesting backgrounds, many of them had teaching backgrounds, and I found that they were also trying to make sense of the business that they had found themselves in. So the conversations were rich, they were perplexing. I think we were all a bit surprised by each other, and then we entered a, a realm of spreadsheets and we made indoor choices based on incredibly um, granular thinking about everything that a university might ever in the future choose to do. Mm. So it was like a um, the most complex prenup. We were trying to imagine our future relationships with one of these suitors.
0: Mm.
1: And we were trying to imagine it in the context of change that was becoming really rapid. So we were trying to make the best choice while not really knowing what we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. That's where I got into um, interacting with vendors. I found them um, really thoughtful people to talk to. And sometimes you had to just step away from that conversation a bit too.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you would have gotten to know the LMS landscape extremely well. And of course, there's a lot of big international players and some local tools as well that have been developed over the years. What's your impression of the current LMS landscape? Have you kept up to, to speed with recent developments?
1: A bit. Um, I was very interested in the, particularly the American commentators who were commenting on the way in which particular LMSs were pulling ahead in a sort of race. Um, I was very influenced at the time by Phil Hill's wonderful work on kind of tracking the big players. Uh, I found his squid diagrams pretty interesting to look at you've touched on the fact that there were international players. One of the things that interested me in the Australian market was that we would inevitably end up buying cultural things along with the package. We would end up Mm -hmm. buying Mm -hmm. assumptions about what American education was if we went with an American company. We would end up with assumptions about the college experience and what the college student in America wanted from an LMS. And we would end up importing a whole lot of values along with the tech that we chose. And I found that a very interesting part of this.
0: Mm, yeah, I think our LMSs do also tend to assume a certain type of academic role, don't they? Um, so quite a few learning management systems uh, make it easy for academic staff to upload their PowerPoint slides, for example. Um, others, I, I guess, would almost uh, encourage a more narrative writing approach on the page so that the pedagogical assumptions come through as well
1: yeah they did and i think it was at about that time that i i started to notice and i think lots of us did that we were moving towards an idea of online that was really content heavy mm. so i had come from a background in in using the tools that facilitated community and exploration and conversation. And I found myself in tools that were really good at delivering content that would have some kind of underdeveloped forum on the side where, you know, a student could post a question and you could answer it. And that seemed such a step backwards for the way that we had been teaching online for a while. But it was also a realistic move. Universities were very, very interested in dealing with the problem of getting away from face-to-face lectures into online content libraries. Mm. I think that really affected the way that we understood what an LMS was there to do.
0: So you've had recent experience too teaching online through COVID, and you also mentioned a COIL project. I'm very interested to learn a bit more about that.
1: Sure. Look, it was interesting to be contacted for a role in online learning because I think since COVID, everybody has been you know, one way or another, leading and learning online. Mm. I think we've all become legends of online learning in a hurry. <laughs> yeah. Every one of my colleagues I would describe in that way. This is also, I think, returned us to some of the origins of online learning back in the 90s. Mm. So back in the days of email listservs and bulletin boards and internet relay chat, I IRC I that. is how I started, yeah. there was – an incentive to try to make those things work because you could connect students to students who were somewhere else. Mm. That was the most important thing. And when the LMS sort of heaved in and blocked the view, the function of the LMS was to to connect students who were all more or less in the same place to content that was being developed in the same place.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So the adventure of distance was lost. Mm -hmm. And I... I mourned it, really. Um, I mourned the magic of early online learning where you would take a group of students in in one part of the world and you would throw them into an IRC channel and students from another part of the world would show up. Yeah. And there was still a sense of wonder that that was possible. Uh, You know, there wasn't really very much wonder about the LMS. So when COVID came around and we all went online, and by this stage I think many of us had broken away from the LMS to go back to using public platforms of various kinds. So, in the degree that I teach in, we use Twitter and WordPress. Uh, mostly, we also use Discord quite a bit. I have colleagues who use Reddit. So, we we'd sort of walked away from the farm a bit. When we were all online, it occurred to me that this was an opportunity to connect students to students who were in other places, And that was because the students in other places were stuck there. So in a sense, the nature of the pandemic wasn't simply that we all went online, but we all went home. So we all of a sudden, we and all of our students were all over the shop. And it meant that being online wasn't just being online, but it was being in your house and being in your house in China and being in your house in Vietnam where it's a different time of day. And the wonder came back, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, so CoIL, which is um, it's a, been around for a long time, it's collaborative online international learning. Mm-hmm. It's a lesser known acronym alongside MOOCs, but it's about as old. And the purpose of CoIL, which in the UK I think they call internationalisation at home, I A H uh, CoIL, is really about doing this on purpose. So not because circumstances have scattered your your class. Yeah. But on purpose an institutional decision to try to put two classes together, maybe deliver a whole course in this way where there's a contribution from more than one place and students from more than one place. And then you deal with the handling of the fees and the course credit somehow. And so we're part of a small partner network that that has three other universities in it in the UK, the United States and in South America in Brazil. Mm-hmm. And we have for two years now put groups of students together to work on a project that happens to be more or less anything, because what we really want to do is test how we can get them together.
0: So the key really is the international experience, more so than the curriculum, it's it's to do with the collaboration, working with with folk yes. in other time zones, from other cultural backgrounds.
1: In other languages, So this is the first time that these students that I teach have taught students whose primary language is not English and whose language of learning, language in the classroom, is not
0: English. Right. Yeah.
1: So that's um, thrown them on their own ingenuity quite a bit to try to find, you know, can you make Google Translate work? What do you do? Do you have simultaneous translation? How does this work? And I think that's a good preparation for the workplace that they want to graduate into, they want to have an international horizon for their, for their graduate futures and they speak only one language. So mm-hmm. they're going to have mm-hmm. to figure out how to work with people who speak another language. So that, that's really what that's been about. And, and again, to do that, we've had to use tools other than the institutional LMS.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So mm-hmm. for that, we've used Slack and Zoom. Yeah. And because all the institutions have different LMSs, And they're all quite inhospitable to each other's students. So that's been a a lovely experience of the past two years. And I'm hoping that we will be able to take it beyond the sort of hobby level that it's at at the moment, which requires quite a lot of effort, and take it to an institutional level where we can find a platform that the institution is interested in investing in, where more than one institution
0: can come together. Mm, Fantastic. So you've been involved in in online education for at least twenty-five years, possibly a bit more. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So what what are some of the themes that you've noticed over time? I mean, you mentioned quite intriguingly the the, the early days of IRC when everything was an adventure. um, Possibly through to the squeeze of the learning management system, where things became a lot more constrained. You're now working a lot more with primary tools. What what are some of the things you've noticed over the last twenty-five years?
1: Look, I think one of the things that's really changed has been students themselves. Mm. So when we were putting students 25 years ago into IRC, they weren't doing a whole lot of other things online. Yeah. So being yeah. online was engrossing. Sitting, staring at a screen, watching someone on the other side of the world type back to you was engrossing. Mm. This is no longer engrossing. Now if I really want to draw students' attention towards engaging with other students, it's actually better to give them a piece of paper and a pencil and s- send them for a walk. And I think this is quite challenging. I think that, that students and staff are now digital first in a way that it's quite hard to manage that claim on our attention. Uh, uh, and so what has really changed now, I think, is that when you teach online, you teach all the time. Your students are reaching out to you in, you know, the grocery queue. Uh, They're catching you at odd moments when you're walking your dog. Mm. Time itself has just spilled everywhere. And that wasn't what it was like 25 years ago. It was much more that you would try to do something synchronous across different time zones. Now you do asynchronous all the time. It's almost polysynchronous because... You're always in your the time zone of your attention. i'm I'm standing waiting to pay at the checkout. Yeah. I'm also being messaged by a student. I happen to have noticed it. I can try not to think about it, but I'm thinking about it. And that becomes a, a kind of polysynchronous mm. attention. Um, I think the other thing that's changed in that in that time, most acutely, has been the crisis in university staffing which means that now a really significant number of people drawn into teaching are paid by the hour.
0: Mm.
1: So always on all the time is particularly exploitative of adjunct and casual academics. And it's reckless with their time. And it's reckless with their pay rate.
0: Mm.
1: So I think that's a problem we haven't reckoned with. And we didn't deal with it in the pandemic at all. We simply said, oh, everyone's at home. This will be very challenging. And we accommodated ourselves to the idea that we would work from home. But in fact, our casual staff who never had any offices have worked from home all along. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: I don't think we're really anywhere near dealing with the inequities that online learning during the pandemic made much worse.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's some very big themes there. Um, I, I think it's almost as if the gig economy is caught up with the university, uh, which yeah. of course is not uh, where academic freedom or, or the advance of knowledge should go. Um, it sounds as though there's quite a few research themes that um, might've occurred to you over, the, over that time timeframe. What, what's some research that you think needs to be done now if we're going to take online learning into a, a more positive future?
1: I think the idea of research for a positive future is a good challenge. It's a good mm-hmm. one to have. I think that we need to understand differently the agency of the learner. We Mm. have intentionally put the M in the LMS. Our goal has been to manage. Mm. Rewilding the learning that really matters to learners. I think learners remember wild learning much more than they remember managed learning. Rewilding the way that we think of learning is going to be an enormous challenge to universities because we're revenue-driven. We like to have Mm. something that has defined boundaries that costs a certain amount. So a a unit of learning is also something that exists as a unit of revenue. And we like to keep things contained within a revenue bucket, especially now. Mm. So I think we want much more research on how we manage that tension. The tension between wanting to offer a product that comes in cans Mm. and the demand by our students to have a much more organic, much more free-range learning experience that happens at a time that works for them and that fits with the other kinds of life they're trying to lead.
0: Yeah, I'm fascinated by that term rewilding. It's one you've used before I take it. What would be an example of how we might make education more wild, if you like, as opposed to managed?
1: Um, For a long time, conventional assessment wisdom said that you should never submit the same assessment twice. In fact, it was considered a form of cheating. So that if you were asked to write an essay over here and you also submitted it over there, we would feel, you know, oh, well, we've caught you doing something wrong. Yeah. What I think of as rewilding is to radically rethink who owns that thought. So who owns the thinking, the creativity, uh, the effort that went into that essay, and who has a right to remix their own materials continually. In fact, that's quite a good way of doing things. That's a good way of learning. So, when I think of of rewilding this way of learning, it is about breaking apart the container of the course credit. Understanding that the course credit is an administrative efficiency, but that doesn't make it a pedagogical bonus. So, I would like to see us doing a lot more to engage with students in a more person-centered way and to say, what is it that you want to learn and how can we enable you to do this over the duration of your degree so that you come out with the skills and capabilities that you need? Personalised, but not in the way that we're talking about personalization, which is increasingly that some form of AI will make recommendations for you yeah. or will tell you that you are not good at something and therefore you'll have to do it again. You know, AI will take the thinking out of your hands. It's almost the opposite of that kind of personalization. Mm. It's mm. radical responsibility on the learner to make choices about the step they want to take next.
0: Mm, That does sound very radical.
1: It does. And I don't think universities are well set up to manage that at the moment. And that's not through any fault of our own. Mm. It's because of the way that we rely on teaching-related revenue to cross-subsidise almost everything else. So we can't take risks with the budget because we take risks with research, with people's jobs, with job security. We have to be fairly conservative in imagining change. but. We also have to be capable of imagining change. If we give up on that altogether, I think we will be outflanked by the internet very quickly.
0: So it sounds as though, uh, Kate, you've been pushing the boundaries somewhat with your uh, COIL work. So actually providing learners with opportunities to do something quite radical, um, almost like rewilding the education experience by taking people out of a curriculum comfort zone into something that's more interpersonal, uh, I guess, more confronting for them. How long have you been doing that and what sort of future do you see for that?
1: Well, I think one way and another, I've probably been doing it all along. Mm. Not because I have a particular barrow to push about any of this, but because I think it's how I learn. I learn when I want to know what's around the corner. I feel a kind of energy that comes with curiosity. Mm. And mm. so I try as far as possible to create opportunities for curiosity and provide enough of a guardrail that people who are nervous about having their first try on the ice um, have something to hold on to if they feel a bit wobbly Well, do I think there's a future for this? Um, I'm not sure that there's a future for this inside the traditional university Yeah, and I'm not sure at the moment I'm writing about the future of higher education and I, I find myself stopping at the end of a paragraph and thinking I'm not sure that I see very clearly what that future can be. I think that higher education has got itself into an escalating sort of situation with with fees. I think we may be at risk of pricing ourselves out of some of the markets we depend on. And what we offer in return is becoming less secure as a proposition. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So I think about that as much as anything as a parent. I have two university-aged children, and I have someone who's deciding whether or not to finish high school. The primary reason to finish high school is to go to university. And so I notice that the advice that I give as a parent is very different from the advice that I might formally give as someone who works in a university. Mm. And I I wonder about the future of that. I I wonder how long before we all break with the contract that we've had with universities – that the function that a university offers to its national community and its international markets is essential.
0: How do you think education might eventually shift then? Because there's quite a bit of power in these tools. There's there's the opportunity to rewild pedagogy. If there was a vision for the university of the future, what do you think it would be?
1: This one, I think, is a very difficult question. It's a a really good question and a difficult one to answer Mm. because the demoralising prospect is that there won't be universities in the future, but there will be EdTech. And EdTech will move into corporate environments and the pipeline will go directly from school through some kind of skills training directly into a a workforce that may or may not be safe for humans in in moral ways. Mm. EdTech will be very good at that, um, at low cost. Mm. I think the associated dimension to that which is very worrying is the offshoring of teaching labour. So that in that increasingly automated future, the surviving humans will be somewhere else being paid at at an unconscionably low rate to provide a service uh, that will expand the profit available from that service without really delivering what we would call education. So while I'm not sure that the traditional university has set a course for itself that is a safe one, some of the alternatives are worse. Yeah. I think universities have to be very bold now. I think we have to hold on to some moral confidence that we are the best people to decide the shape that higher education should be in. And that means we have to let go of, as we hold on to our moral confidence, we have to let go of the things that have kept us secure in the past. Mm. If there's going to be change to higher education, it should be made by us. Yeah. I think we need a collaboration. We need to think of universities as communities of people who are really smart, who do great research, who know how to think, and who care about the future of the communities that they live and work in. Mm. And I think we have to trust ourselves to be innovative in non-reckless ways. And I think the evidence that we can do it is that we have been doing it. So we need to also notice our own history of innovation and be more confident about that. I think in Australia, I don't know about where you are in New Zealand, I think we're very tired of being told by Silicon Valley that we haven't realised that the game is up. My response to that is you haven't even realised where we are. So I, th- I think that we need to be a lot more assertive about the educational future for Australians and New Zealanders and for others in our region. We need to stop importing. And the solution yeah. to importing isn't exporting. Uh, it is probably growing authentic content and authentic ways of learning where we are.
0: Well, Kate, you've you've been involved in online education for quite some time now that you've come across a lot of people whose work has influenced you. Uh, Can you tell me about two people you'd recommend as leaders or legends of online learning, Uh, one whose work has significantly influenced you in the past and one who you think might have something to share in in more recent times?
1: I was thinking about this, and the one that jumps to my mind is Dave Cormier. Uh, So Dave Cormier at the University of Windsor, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: very well known for many major initiatives, uh, novelties of all kinds. But actually, just the most consistent thinker I find when I want to understand where are we now, I'll go and look at Dave's blog and Dave is almost always writing about something that I can directly use. I can immediately <laughs> apply.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, so when I was thinking about how to think about community rather than content, I found Dave writing about community as curriculum and that was exactly what I needed because I was stuck between community and content and that little nudge from Dave got me to see that of course what the community is thinking about is the curriculum for the for what we're going to do. Yeah. Then when I was thinking what do we do about the fact that everyone is um, online all the time and it's actually very hard to figure out what we should be doing, Dave was writing about abundance and I found again immediately helpful in practical and applicable ways, but also just Mm. such smart thinking. Um, I would say that Dave is absolutely my go-to thinker, a thinker who I'm sure everybody, everybody has recommended to you is Audrey Waters. I I find that Audrey's um, capacity to explain to us in clear and measured ways that all of this has happened before Gets us out of that trap of um, novelty, thinking that we've come up with something. Mm. What, Mm. What Audrey has done in her book on teaching machines is just so patiently explained the backstory to us. And I find that I can apply that thinking to whatever I do. I mean, I'm influenced by lots and lots of people because so many people are generous with their thinking in putting it online. Yeah. You said too, and I'm going to throw in another one. Um, blogger Donna Lanclo. Now, I don't know. I've never said her name out loud. I have no idea if that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. But um, Donna's work on refusal really stays with me as something that we need to understand how to do in higher education. We need to think with all of our thinking skills about refusal. Yeah. And I've found that although that's not directly about online learning, actually it is. It really is. Um, Online learning is gift horse after gift horse after gift horse that you have
0: to look in the mouth.
1: Donna's counsel about refusal is by my side at all times.
0: Excellent. And Kate, I have to admit, it's been fascinating talking with you. There's a great deal of experience, but also wisdom that comes through when you talk through online learning and its potential. So thank you so much for being a leader and legend of online learning.
1: Oh, you're absolutely
0: welcome. You can learn more about Kate and her work from our website. That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com to follow up on this episode's guest. You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals, and you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends@gmail.com. at gmail.com.